Today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 4. A lot of twos. Before I start reading, I want you to be aware of one thing as we read. Who is the focus of this passage? Who is the focus of this passage? And I'll give you a hint. It's two people. Two people. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I want to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, but has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we loaded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. God, we thank you for you, first and foremost. Let that never go unsaid. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this place to gather. We thank you for technology to live stream. We thank you for heat that keeps the building warm, cars to bring us here. Lord, we thank you for the fellowship that we have in you and with you and in and with each other. Lord, we thank you for the worship and for those who led us in it. We thank you for the word and for those who even put these Bibles together for us to read. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us this morning? Would you meet us? Will the words of your living word come alive in fresh, tangible, and powerful ways? Will this not be a stale spiritual exercise that we engage in, but a fresh and unique opportunity to come again to the living God and find that he has been longing to meet with us and change us in ways we maybe don't even expect? Lord, would you be glorified by the reading of your word and the preaching of it? Would you edify us? Would it be for our good, for the good of those we will meet with, and ultimately, Jesus, for your glory. Thank you, Lord, that you love us. May this be all done according to your will. We ask and pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Friends, you may be seated. And for the final time this morning, 
Good morning. We are glad you are here. Whether you are new or newer, welcome. Whether you're a regular attender, welcome back. And if you call this place home because you're a member, welcome home. We are glad you are here. Last week, we started a sermon series going through the book of 2 Corinthians with the theme that we call unshakable. Unshakable. What does it mean to actually know and learn how to walk by faith in a sinful and broken world? What does it actually mean to be like the mountains we see all around the world that scripture so uh, plentifully used as an illustration and a metaphor for things that cannot be shaken? What does that mean? It's what we're learning about in this season. Last week, as Pastor Will introduced this sermon series to us, we looked at this idea about how to share abundantly in the sufferings and the comfort of Jesus. And we don't like that. Because we want it to be, how do I share abundantly in the comfort of Jesus? And we can skip the suffering part. But as Paul so eloquently says in the first part of this book, and go back and watch it or go back and read it if you weren't there, you do not get the comfort of Jesus without the suffering. But praise be to God that all we get is not just suffering, but it's that comfort, that sweet, sweet comfort. But this morning, friends, we're going to look at this idea, that to be unshakable, to truly walk and live in a world and not have your circumstances dictate to you what your faith looks like, but the other way around, is to hold on to what I call the twofold boast. And we're going to unpack that in a minute. But to start, I want to point out something that maybe you all experience when you read the Bible. Maybe you don't, or maybe it comes up every so often. And if it does, that's okay. This is a pretty normal reaction. What is going on? <laughs> What's going on? You read it, and yes, it's in English, but it doesn't feel like it's in English. You read it, and you go, there's a lot of words here I don't even use in my normal vocabulary. You read it, and you go, I'm, I'm tracking, but whatever this is of trying to get me to realize, I'm, right? And then we like, go to Google, or we go to commentaries, or we find the pastor or whatever, and like, uh, help me make this make sense. And if that's you, that's okay. That is all of us at given points in our lives. That's okay. That's why Paul and other letters can call this very thing we read a mystery. It's okay. However, let us do us all a favor this morning and shed just a little bit of insight. What's going on in this passage is like walking into a dinner party or a gathering, maybe walking even into this building this morning, and joining a conversation that clearly was already happening. You walk in and you're catching the very tail of the sentence and, and that's why I kicked him out of my house. And you're like... That, that's a strong sentence. What is going What is the context of that conversation, right? It's like walking into a conversation that's already happening, where you don't know what was said, what's being said now, why it's being said, and what's the point of all of this? Where is this going? When you jump into something like 2 Corinthians, that's what's happening. There has been a conversation going on back and forth between Paul and this church that we are now getting another glimpse into. We are stepping into a very particular moment in time. That calls for a little plane catching up. But the other thing I want you to understand as well, friends, is that there's a very key word that was the whole point of this passage that shows up multiple times. Boast. What is it to boast in something? It's part pride and part strength, right? Where's Tim? Where did Tim go? Tim's wearing a Chiefs jersey this morning. Do you know what Tim boasts in? The Chiefs. Go Patrick Mahomes. For those of you who have young elementary or even middle school kids, a lot of times you'll have their homework 
or their drawings and their paintings or whatever up on your fridge. Why? Because you're proud of that. You're proud of them. For those of you who have older kids or kids who are already out of the house, you might keep their mementos, their trophies, their accomplishments, any kind of tangible memorabilia for their, everything they've done in their lives because you're proud of them. And hopefully they're proud of you. We boast in things and in people all the time. And pride isn't necessarily an unhealthy thing. There is a holy pride, a holy boasting, a holy proudness. Because believe it or not, friends, God is proud of you as his beloved children. That gets confusing for us sometimes because we all know the very first saying in Genesis 3 was pride. But just like Paul talks about anger being righteous or unrighteous, the thing in itself is not sinful. It's how it ends up playing out. And so, yes, when Paul is talking and this conversation that we're about to jump into, he is boasting in something. He is declaring his pride, his joy, his gladness in something and someone. But the other side of that is also his strength. The thing that we boast in is the thing that we say, I draw strength from this thing. I can make it through the day because I know at the end of it I'll be with my spouse or I'll be with my kids. Or I can make it through this day because at the end of it I'm going to go out with my friends and we're going to have a good time. I can make it through this day because fill in the blank. That's the thing that you say, I will boast, I will plant my flag here because this is the thing that will keep me safe and this is the thing that will get me through. Friends, in order to be unshakable, we need to know what do we boast in? Where do we plant our flag? Where do we draw our strength from? What do we put pride in? Holy pride, righteous pride, unsinful pride. And to begin to understand that, we're going to dive into this conversation. Believe it or not, friends, Paul, the author of this letter, is under attack. Not necessarily physically, not this time, but absolutely verbally and spiritually. He's under attack. Realize that Paul, in part, writes this letter back to the Corinthian church because there are those in their midst that want to do away with him. Funny how that works out, right? That church doesn't exist without Paul. And now, some of them, not all of them, but some of them are turning around and saying, who are you? Why do you matter? Should we be listening to you? Should we be okay with what you're doing and why you're doing it? They attack all these different areas of who Paul is, his apostleship. Do you really have the authority to say what you're saying? They attacked his conduct. Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you allowed to do that, Paul? And they attack his commitment. Do you really love us? Do you really care about us? Or are we just a side project for you? They attack his character, and they call all these things into question. Now, here's what's interesting. Put yourself in Paul's shoes for just a second. Imagine there is this community, this beloved community that you are an integral part of. You love them. You are invested in them. You have sacrificed for them. You've given your time, blood, sweat, tears, and effort for them and towards them that they may know Jesus. And now you're being under attack. What would you do? Many of us would start to, you know, okay, let me bring out the receipts. Hold on. Let me show you all the ways you're wrong. You have this, this, this. Let me counter with this, this, this. Let me get my character witnesses. Let me get the people to testify about who I am and what I've done. Let me get all the people who can out-drown, out-noise the naysayers. That's what we would do. Our walls would go up, and we would go into fight-or-flight mode. We would defend ourselves. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying that's a slippery slope. Paul 
does that later. In chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13, he talks about his apostleship. That's the end of the letter. His conduct, he talks about every so often, but he really hones in on it in chapters 8 and 9. Two major points he delays to talk about till the end of the letter. What? Why? Shouldn't that be like verse 1, chapter 1? Hey, everybody. You want to call into question all of this? Well, let's go. Let's go there. You want to talk about that? Fine. That's not what he does. And his commitment is what we see in part in focus today, but it's also spread throughout the letter. Paul is suffering character assassination, assassination, and he responds very oddly. He responds very, very oddly. Friends, this is the question I want you to ask yourself for just a second. What does Paul know that we, as the readers in the 21st century, don't know? There's a reason Paul is doing what he's doing. The man is brilliant. The man is savvy. The man has planted churches throughout Asia Minor at that point. He knows what he's doing. How we got there, we'll talk about today. But he knows what he's doing. So why is he doing it? Why doesn't he decide to stand on the edge of that slippery slope of self-defense and protection, instead taking a giant step back and turning his focus and attention somewhere else? Here's what Paul knows. Paul's aware of the greater implications at stake. His naysayers want to go after his character. Paul understands there's a much bigger battle happening here. Come after my character all you want, Paul will say. But that's not actually what's at stake. Keep in mind, he is a man. He absolutely cares about his reputation. He doesn't want people to see him as some vagabond, someone who's just using and abusing his power, or somebody who is seizing power for himself that he does not rightly deserve. But Paul, in his reaction in this letter, demonstrates something very powerful for us that I dare not want us to miss. That is not nearly as important as their spiritual well-being. How does Paul know that? Why does Paul tackle that first? We have real-world examples of this. Paul knows if they discredit his message, they will start to doubt Paul, which sucks. But you know how, where that will ultimately pass on to? To the one whom Paul preaches. If his naysayers can undo Paul's efforts, they are going to wreak havoc on the well-being and the faith of that church. Yes, it will first start with, they'll doubt Paul. And given enough time, they'll doubt Jesus. And Paul knows that. He knows it. If that seems like an interesting or somewhat confusing kind of idea for you, could it really translate that much? Just go on the internet. Spend 10 minutes about ministry leaders and moral failures. I know plenty of those folks. I know plenty of those who went to those churches who received ministry pastoral care and guidance from those who had positions of power in the name of Jesus and then utterly crumbled because they weren't actually given over to Jesus. And how many people walked away from God even though it had nothing to do with God but it had everything to do with the one who was representing him. This happens, unfortunately, all the time. All of the time. Where if you can kill the messenger, so goes his message. 
if you can get rid of what he is, you get rid of what he is saying. And that does something in us. To see the one that leads us to faith or is so integral and important in the development of our faith crumble, for good reasons or not, right? Hindsight's 20-20, but in the moment we're blind. They crumble, that does something. That shakes our faith to its core. And if it's not boasted and rooted in the right place, it turns to dust. And Paul is aware of this. Paul's aware of this because he's a pastor. We know Paul primarily as an apostle, an evangelist, an apologetic defender of the faith, as a teacher, as a preacher, as a church planner. Yes, he has all those things. But Paul's a pastor. And his pastor's heart is what we see come out in this, in this passage. Paul absolutely does care about what people think about him. He cares more about their vibrancy and their intimacy with Jesus. Whew. That's important, friends. And that colors everything we're going to talk about from this point forth. Yeah, I kind of already talked about that. Paul begins this section by telling his readers, take a magnifying glass to everything I am and everything I've done. Go ahead. To quote David, he would say, search me and know me. I have nothing to hide. I know what I've done and why I have done it. And did you catch what his reasoning was? Yes, he did it with godly sincerity and wisdom. He didn't do it by the wisdom of the world, but everything he did and why he did it was by God's grace, which is that first boast. For our boast is this, but by the grace of God. But by the grace of God. Grace is a really big idea that is in every single page of the Bible. So it can be sometimes hard to understand what is the Bible actually trying to get at when it's trying to tell me about grace. To try and take a really big concept and to make it really simple and palpable for us, you can think of grace like this, undeserved merit or favor. There's something in our lives, there's something that is happening in our lives, that is something that is coming forth out of our lives that we didn't make happen, that we don't deserve, and we sure as heck don't fully understand, but it's there, and it's happening. It's because of God's goodness. This grace of God, this undeserved merit, and then Paul wanting to make sure his readers then and now understand what is this grace of God and why is it so important, begins to unpack it. Pastor Paul starts bringing out his tool belt. First, Paul makes sure they understand that he never forgot how that grace of God came for him. Have you ever met somebody who's been following Jesus for a really long time? If you ask them why they follow Jesus, they can't seem to remember why. I've met those people. I'm not saying their faith is not sincere. Far from it. What I am saying is, what happened in the middle? What happened that you forgot? As they would later say in the book of Revelation, where is your first love? Paul never forgot. In his first letter to Timothy, his disciple, whom he is writing 2 Corinthians with, he says this to Timothy, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. Paul never forgot, and it colors all of his actions. Paul goes to unpack and to say that this boast in Jesus, this boast in the grace of God, 
is founded on the promises of God because they find their yes in him. Did you catch that part as we read it? All the promises of God are found yes and amen in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? That means that everything that God has ever promised his people that has come true, is going to come true, is only possible, and you can bank on it because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. It's true of him, it's true in him, and it's true through him. So what are those promises? Like the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things are true in Jesus and can be true for you. Wisdom, provision, hope, mercy, justice, might, authority, the list can go on and on and on. All of these good, heavenly promises are ours and are theirs in Christ. Do you realize what Paul is saying? Do you realize that whether we use these words or not, we are clamoring for this? How many times we end up in a situation where we feel like we don't have wisdom? How many times we end up in a situation where we feel like God has not provided? Or we don't have a way forward? How many times we feel like, God, the world is broken and I don't see your goodness coming forth? Can you fix it? And Paul's reminding them again so that their faith may not be shaken. All those things are true and good and right and yours in Jesus. And that never changes because he never changes. Friends, that is important. But the boasting goes on. He continues to unpack this idea of the grace of God. He says to the Corinthians, you can be unshakable because of this grace of God because this grace of God has anointed you in the Holy Spirit. Anointing calls back to this idea of what they did with the priests in the Old Testament. Before they were set apart, before they were made holy, which is what set apart means, before that happened, they were anointed with oil as a sign, as a sign that says God has now taken you and set you apart. For what? For purposeful work and direction. That anointing mattered. It mattered then, and it's so cool that it still matters now. God has taken that very Old Testament idea and actually fulfilled it in Jesus as he has done with all of the Old Testament ideas and all of the Old Testament truth and all of the law and all of the prophets, as it says. All of them find their fulfillment in Jesus, just like the promises. Just like the promises. Friends, when Paul says to those Corinthians and he says now to us that you are anointed with the Holy Spirit, we have been set apart. We've been made holy, not by our own efforts, not by the things that I do or the things that I promise to do. I have been made holy. I have been made clean because of Jesus. Amen. 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 And not only that, I've been set apart and made clean and holy. Why? For purposeful work and direction. You want to know it's the three biggest things I talk about with teenagers and young adults? Who am I? What am I doing with my life? Where am I going? All of that, Paul tells us. It's found in the anointing of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus Christ. Purposeful work and direction. Purposeful work and direction. Is that a mystery that needs to be parsed out, but is waiting for us to receive as a gift in Jesus Christ? But Paul's not done. Paul's still not done. Anybody know what this 1970 wonderful album is by Stevie Wonder? Stevie Wonder has a song off of that album that says, Signed, Sealed, Delivered. I'm yours. It's a beautiful song about a woman 
So Stevie Wonder almost got it right. <laughs> almost. But you know who else is signed, sealed, and delivered? And his? Us. Us. It says that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter? What are we sealed for? If a letter is sealed, the way it's sealed here, that seal is unique. It's an imprint. That seal is for all who would handle that letter to know whose letter that is and whose protection that letter is under. A seal says, treat this letter with care. Why? Because it belongs to someone important. And that someone important is protecting that. So when Paul says to them, in an effort to make sure their faith is unshakable, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, he's saying to them, you belong to Jesus Christ. Your ownership is not up for grabs. Your identity is not up for grabs. It's not. It's been set in stone. But not only that, because of the one who has set it in stone for you, he protects you. The authority of heaven sits upon his shoulders, like we just talked about in Advent. And that authority rests over you and protects you. Could you imagine how life-giving that would have been for a church experiencing so much turmoil? For a church that was literally ripping itself apart and fighting Paul from the inside out. For a church who, remember, Corinthians, or Corinth as the city, had a word made out of it to Corinthianize something. How bad do you have to be to change the language around you to make it talk about you? Bad. Could you imagine being a church in that city? Could you imagine trying to talk to Jesus with your friends and families and neighbors? Could you imagine actually trying to have powerful faith and not buckle to the tides of evil and chaos always swimming around you? Could you imagine how tough that must have been? And Paul says to them, you're protected. You're protected. You have nothing to worry about. This Jesus who has given you life and identity is not going to let you fall. But friends, all of that is just the grace of God. That first boat, boast. No wonder Paul is not shaken. No wonder he's unshakable. Look at all that he stands upon. The promises of God are his. The anointing is his. The authority and might is his. He is sealed with the Holy Spirit. What can the world do to him? Seriously, think about it. If you actually knew the way Paul knew, all of these things are yours, you would walk out there, you would walk into every hospital wing, go to stage four cancer patients and say, in the name of Jesus, you'd be healed. And you would believe it happened. And you would believe it would happen. You can see people crippled. You can see people lame. You can see people deaf and mute and say to them, I believe Jesus can do something for you. And in his name, it will happen. You can see those whose marriages are falling apart, whose parenthoods are abysmal, whose life records are played like a bad Quentin Tarantino movie. Like, you can look at people who are down in the dumps, no matter how they got there, and say to them, Jesus can do something for you, because he's done something for me. I have all this standing behind me, and it can stand behind you. Friends, if we actually boasted in the goodness and grace of God, our world would be so different. Our world would be so different. But instead of just a crazy pipe dream, it's actually possible. 
Don't hear me say this as some kind of lament and rebuke that get your act together and have more faith. I'm saying this is can we remember where God is actually calling us to? Because it's not a pipe dream, it's a reality, because it's a promise. And I believe we just talked about all the promises of Jesus. All the promises of Jesus are yes and amen. That world is coming. That world is coming. But may it get here sooner, <laughs> honestly. Now, that's the first boast. What in the world can follow that up? Like, we should just worship and come back up, let's pray. Like, that, that's it. That should be enough. But Paul, in his wisdom, declares to them, that's not enough. What? How can that possibly not be enough? How can that possibly be not the full picture of all that we boast in, that we put our pride in, that we find our strength in, that we put our, plant our flag in? How can that not be it? What more can you add to that? And it's the same thing that God added to Adam in Genesis. When he was perfect before sin and said it's not good for man to be alone, God saw the perfect Adam and said, you're not perfect yet. What is that second boast, friends? That on the day of our Lord Jesus, you, Corinthian church, will boast of us, and we will boast of you. Whoa. Hold on, let me make sure we get, we're hearing Paul correctly here. Is Paul equating the level of importance of community and fellowship to that of the grace of God? Is that what Paul is saying here? Yes. Because those two are not in mutual opposition. The grace of God was not just for Paul. The grace of God was for them. The grace of God isn't just for me. For you. For you. For you online. <laughs> it's for us. God so deigned to give his grace to all who believe, leveling the playing field and making us holy in him. The grace of God is theirs too. Do you realize that from an, argument, an arguing standpoint, Paul is a master arguer. He can take their naysaying accusations and fundamentally break it down, even though that's not even the point of the letter right now. Wow, what a mind. Because look at what he subtly and then not so subtly in verses 20 and 22, ends up telling them. I asked you at the beginning when I read these verses, who is the focus here? It absolutely is on Jesus, which is why it's that first boast. But then the focus is on them as well. To write a letter to those who are naysaying, don't trust Paul, Paul's saying, hold on, we're all in this together. We're in the same boat, friends. If they're, if they're saying don't trust me, you shouldn't be trusting any of you. If they want to take me down, they want to take us down because they're trying to take Jesus down. That's not okay. But I want to read it for you again, these two verses, these three verses, excuse me, because I want you to catch the instances of us. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus. That is why through him that we, we, we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes me. Nope, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed me, no, anointed us, who has also put his seal on 
us and given us his spirit in our hearts and as a guarantee. Do you see the language here? What it's pointing to. What it's pointing to. The reason why Paul can say we should boast in each other is because of this little line in verse 15, these second experiences of grace. Some of the details in this passage is about how Paul is planning to go visit them. He's on his way to a farther destination, so he wants to make sure his route takes, them, takes him through Corinth to that final destination and on his way back through Corinth because he loves them so much. Why would he want to go visit them unless he loves them and cares about them? Otherwise, that's just a waste of time. That's misleading. But he actually cares and loves, about them, loves them. But more than just that, he realizes if he would be found in their presence again, he can offer them a second experience of grace. How can he say that? One, because he understands where his boast is. He walks around with the grace of God, and so he can freely give the grace of God. Well, the reverse is true too, his friends. Because they walk around with the grace of God, they can be vessels for the Holy Spirit to give others second experiences of grace. How often, right, you follow Jesus long enough and you realize that the fundamentals are the fundamentals. They don't change, you just learn about them in new and interesting ways. The metaphors might change, the analogies might change, but at the end of the day, we boast in Christ Jesus alone. That never changes. That's never going to change. It's not supposed to change. But then how often do we in our lives go through something, either a sin of our own or the sin of others, or a tumultuous situation, a stressful situation, and we are reminded by ones, by people in our lives that love us and love Jesus about those same fundamental truths. And it feels like we're hearing it and seeing it and receiving it for the first time. Have you ever had that happen to you? I can't tell you how many times I've heard about how Jesus loves me. I know that. I do. I teach people about how Jesus loves them. And I can't tell you how many times I find myself in the dumps and someone in my life has to come to me and says, Jesus loves you. And I go, oh my goodness, that's true. That, friends, is a second experience of grace. It's why God gave us us. It's why when we pray things like, may Jesus make us the hands and feet of him, it's so that, yes, we can be his earthly representation in an earthly spiritual way to bring about second experiences of grace. Second moments where we recognize and receive that undeserved merit and favor because God loves us. Wow, I will plant my flag on that. I will boast in that. This connection is highlighted by Jesus when he is asked by some scribes, Rabbi, what is the greatest commandment? And he tells them, as, as I'm sure 98.7 of us can quote, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And we expect him to stop there, and he says, and the second is like it. Whoa, hold on, the greatest commandment has two parts? Yes, and love your neighbor like yourself. Jesus, in that moment, yokes two things that will never come untrue because they have always been yoked from the beginning. That this connection between God and his people absolutely affects and is derived upon the connection between his people and his people and people with people. That's the positive way to look at it. Here's a negative way to look at it. There are times in our lives, friends, where we might be really struggling in our faith. And God is actually saying, you can love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I, I see that you're trying to do that. But you won't love my people the way you love me. 
there's a disconnect here. The math's not adding up. I can't tell you how many times I myself have been going through something with Jesus, and I go, Jesus, I need your answer for this. And Jesus says, go do this for your neighbor. And I go, that's not what we talked about. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I'm crying out to you in my desperation, and you tell me, go serve somebody else. What's up? Like, what, what, that doesn't make sense. That's like if your kid came to you and said, I'm hungry, and you said, go take out the trash. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> that, but I'm hungry. Go take out the trash. But I'm hungry. Be quiet and go take out the trash. And yet I do it because the Holy Spirit is telling my spirit, do it. Do it. Trust me. Do it. I go, okay. And what magically, but not so magically happens at the end of it, is that that frustration and desperation I suddenly have new light and insight into. That because I have exercised and trusted in this unbreakable connection between God and his people and people with people, God has said, okay, now that we've rectified the lack of love here, we are rectifying the lack of love here. When this has been brought into right, holy accord with God, this can be brought into right, holy accord with God. And the other way around, mind you. And the other way around. What John, who led us in worship today, was praying as we were beginning the service was, it was a boon to my heart, John. Because it's this. Right? Like, if you could just cut out everything I said and just put John's prayer right where I said right now, it'd be the same thing. This is so important, friends. We need this. We were made for this. We were. And like I said earlier, and I'll say it again, we're all in this together. This is High School Musical. This song that they sing in this scene is like 80% garbage, in my opinion. <laughs> I'm just saying, okay? However, this song, we are all in this together. Gold. Whoever wrote that for them, Gold. They hit upon a spiritual truth whether they realize it or not. We all are on this together. <sighs> High school musical. <sighs> Friends, this second boast is so important because we need each other to be unshakable. We need each other to be unshakable. We are the part, not all of it, but part of the reminders and the sources of grace from God for each other. From God for each other. I want to tell you in a very concrete way. So often, we say to each other, I don't need you, or I don't want you, because I don't like you, and I don't like what you talk about. What we're actually saying there, friends, to God is, I don't need you, Jesus. You're allowed to work in my life, Jesus, but not through that person. You're allowed to answer my questions, Jesus, but not through that person. You are allowed to move in my life to help me transform to be more like you and less of me like John prays in John 3, but not through those group of people. No. And what Jesus would turn around and say is, if you say you don't need them, you're saying you don't need me. Because I, the Almighty Father, have chosen for them to be my grace to you. <sighs> yes, are there nuances? Absolutely. We don't have time necessarily to go into those nuances. But friends, let yourselves constantly be drawn to the place where it says, if I am convinced that having this person in my life is not good, you're going to find yourself on one or two extremes. Either, yes, that might be true because of things like abuse, for example. Again, there are nuances to this. But everything else outside of those nuances is something in our hearts convicting us of putting our boast and our pride in a place where Jesus says that's not good.
friends realize that Paul's reasons for not visiting them are rooted in this second boast. Here's a little bit more of the background that's going on with this passage. Paul was supposed to visit them. That becomes very obvious in the verses we read this morning. And he doesn't. He doesn't. He has a uh, Jack Nicholson moment from A Few Good Men, the 1992 war movie, if you know what I'm talking about. Jack Nicholson's character is on the stand being interviewed by Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise wants to know, did you order the code red? And Jack Nicholson looks at him, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. And that's what Paul says to them. You want to know why I didn't come visit you? He actually would not be for your good. Because if I come to visit you, Pastor Paul has to show up. And Pastor Paul is going to see all the ways you're not following Jesus. And guess whose shoulders it falls on to correct them? Pastor Paul's shoulders. But then guess who becomes the brunt of their disgruntlement? Guess who becomes the target for their... Paul would want to come because he loves and cares for them. That's what we see in these verses. He desires the joy and love of Christ for them. But he realizes sometimes love is tough love. And he wants to bring that to them, but they're not going to receive it like that. He's going to be doing what God is calling him to do, and they're just going to see it as the work of the enemy. Talk about stuck between a rock and a hard place. The happy medium he finds is writing this letter. He's not going to abdicate his responsibility, but he realizes and he says, I want to be joy for you, but I'm going to end up hurting you. And then when I'm hurt, the people I would turn to to help me feel that joy again would actually have been you, but I won't find it there because you're hurt. Even this second boast is a reason for what Paul is doing when it seems like he's staying the distance for now. Friends, where have we received this grace of God? I said it before, and hopefully you caught it, but I will say it again. For all those who have put our trust in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this grace, this boast, this twofold boast is ours too. We do not read about an idea that is far and distinct. We read about a truth that is reality now. That this grace of God, the promises, the anointing, the blessing, the authority, and the power and the might, the sealing and the Holy Spirit, the triune God himself, lives in us. It's true now. 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 So where have we received this grace? Take it. 30 seconds. Where have you received this grace? Who's the person that introduced you to Jesus? There you received that grace. Who is the person in your darkest or the people in the darkest of moments in your lives? Were the hands and feet of Jesus. There you have received that grace. Where are those where even before anybody knew you were going through something, there they were. You have received this grace. But friends, I wouldn't be doing Paul justice and I want to be doing Jesus justice if I didn't remind us of this as well. To the degree that we boast in anything other than God's grace is to the degree that we will find our faith trembling. Find me a person who's really struggling in their faith and you will have found me a person who is isolated and alone. Find me a person who's shake, whose faith is shaking and I'll find you a person who has forgot about the grace of God. 
find me a person who's wavering in what they proclaimed to be their unwavering beliefs, and I, you have found me a person that doesn't want to turn to Jesus the way Jesus is asking them to go to him. I'm not making light of all this, but I'm saying let's be honest. I don't want, to, I don't want Jack Nicholson's quote to be true about me and us. I want to handle the truth. But this is truth, friends. When we are going to plant the flag of our boast in anything and anyone but Jesus and his people, we will find that the faith that Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. We will find even that little bit of faith wavering. But it doesn't have to be. Because Paul says all of this to them and to us, that our faith may stand the test of time that our faith would be unshaken no matter what is happening in our world around us if we would simply lean and depend and trust, surrender, and boast in that grace of God and boast in how it comes through his people. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for that grace. We thank you for that undeserved merit and favor. We thank you that it is ours in Jesus and it is ours always and forever. We thank you that all of those promises are true in Jesus. They are yes and amen. Lord, we thank you for Paul's vulnerability and willingness in writing this letter to show us the way forward. That even in the midst of personal heartache and attack, he can keep his eyes on the ultimate goal. The spiritual well-being of his beautiful congregation in Corinth, but also on the glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, this morning, as we go to worship you again with our songs and our words one final time, would you be speaking to us, Holy Spirit? Would you birth in us an unwavering, holy dissatisfaction, an unwavering, gentle yet firm conviction, an unwavering call to you that we would boast in you and only you? That, Lord Jesus, in your tenderness and in your care and your love for us, would you come speak to us even now and reveal to our blind eyes where we may boast in anything that's not you or your God-given people. Lord, we don't want weak foundations. We don't want to have faith that trembles. We want to be like Mount Zion that stands as a testimony and a testament to the meeting place of God and to his goodness in this world. Lord Jesus, build in us unshakable faith that we would be an eternal witness to the watching world, that we would be like a city on a hill, that we would be a lamp that has not been put under a shade. Build in us, Jesus, unshakable faith. Only you can. And use us to do it for us. Move mightily in our midst for each other, for our good, for those in our lives that we will share this with. And Jesus is always ultimately for your glory. We ask and pray.